Welcome to the Imago Day Community Podcast. Good morning, Imago. I am Michelle Jones, and we are continuing in our series in the book of Genesis. We're actually going to transition now from our last kind of sub-series on sojourners, and we're moving into a new one. So as we move through the book of Genesis, we're seeing how God moves in and through and for his creation to invite it back into relationship with him. Now he chooses to work through this family uh, of Abraham and Sarah. And in the last few weeks, we looked at their story and we looked at how it looks to walk by faith in a world that is changing, in a world that God is remaking. And last week, ironically, on Father's Day, Rick ended that part of the series by talking about the testing of Abraham. Uh, He talked about the ultimate act of faith where this father was asked to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And you should give it a listen if you haven't. This week, we're moving into a sub-series called Everyday Grace. And we're transitioning from Abraham and Isaac to Isaac's son, Jacob. Now it's in this family that God gives birth to his beloved people, Israel. And God is kind of, he's kind of silent during this time, but he's clearly moving over and over and often behind the scenes and in every part of Jacob's life. And in the next few weeks, we'll actually see how it is grace alone that shapes us. It's grace alone that heals and rescues us and lives us into greater intimacy with God. Now, Rick and Alex will be going into detail in terms of Jacob's life. So I'm actually here to give you a framework to work with, just to kind of shape what the series is going to be and just kind of give you a few themes to consider as you move through it. So as we see in the world and in the church, um, that and, and in life too, that life, that change, it's a good thing to be reminded when we're looking at this world that is changing, that is moving, that is being remade before our eyes. It's a good thing to be reminded that we have a God who is always present and working, and even when we can't see him, he is. Even when we don't know him, even when we're working against him by trying to advance our own agenda in our lives. And these are the things that we learn with Jacob. So we learn in Genesis that God made this covenant with Abraham. And he is considered the father of faith, the friend of God. God takes him out and he takes him out for a walk and he shows him the sky and he says, you see those stars up there? I'm gonna make your descendants number the stars in the sky and I'm going to bless you. And through you, all the world will be blessed. And very quickly, really quickly, we learn that Abraham's family, it's kind of a hot mess. I mean, we don't have enough time. We don't have enough sermons to actually cover all the drama that happens throughout the generations. Maybe HBO could do it justice, kind of like a, like a cross between Game of Thrones and Succession maybe. But there are three things that I want you to consider and look at as you walk through and as you look at this family, not just through this series, but through the, through the other series as we walk through them. A, that most families are or have in them a bit of a mess. That's just kind of a a thing. My family, your family, all God's families are a mess. And number two, that nothing is too hard for God to handle. We learned when he talked to Sarah that he said, is anything 
too hard for God, is anything too impossible, too magnificent, too beyond him to deal with? And the answer, of course, is no. And then the third thing is that the truth is, is that grace is very hard to see and appreciate apart from our need for grace. You'll often hear me say that grace is not for people who don't screw up, it's for people who do. It's not for people who don't make mistakes, it's for people who do. It's not for perfect people. Grace is for all of us imperfect people who live in this world. Um, and one thing that Jacob's life will tell us is that we need grace more than we actually know. There are a number of times throughout his life where if it were not for God's grace, not for God's presence when he saw it and when he didn't see it, if it were not for God's presence, if it were not for his provision, if it were not for God's protection, things could have ended very badly for Jacob. And so that is the first thing that I want us to look at today is that grace is the miracle of God made normal. It is God made normal present in our lives, always and in all ways. Grace is the amazing ordinariness of God. It is the ordinariness of breathing and breath, of light and warmth, of rain and turning leaves. It is God contained in a man named Jesus and a Holy Spirit that walks with us in our daily mundane, Monday through Sunday weeks. Author Eugene O'Neill put it this way. He said, man is born broken. He lives by mending. The grace of God is glue every day. Psalm 23 says that goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And it's actually a picture of what it means to be hounded by something, something nipping at your heels. God's goodness and his mercy, i.e. God's grace, follows us all of the days of our lives. In Psalm 139, seven through 10, it says, the psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on wings of the dawn and if I settle far on the side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Everywhere that we go, God's grace is with us. Everywhere that we travel, God's goodness and mercy follows us. In the book of Lamentations, in chapter three, the, the, the prophet says, because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. We look at this, his mercy is new every morning, King James says, every single morning. God is not wasteful. We have new mercy every morning, probably because we use it up every day, whether we know it or not. Grace is God seeing us where we are, meeting us where we are, and then moving us from where we are to where he has called us to be. In Genesis, he says to Jacob, Jacob is traveling away from home and he makes his bed with a, a rock for a pillow and he sleeps. And when he's asleep, he has this dream and God meets him in this dream. And one of the things that God says is, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. Remember that I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done 
what I have promised you. And so when we look at that promise that God has made to Jacob, he has said to him, look, everything that those other verses said, Psalm 139, Psalm 23, Lamentations, all of them, I'm with you. I'm following you, I'm going in front of you to lead you, I'm beside you to walk next to you, and I will not leave you until I have accomplished every single promise that, I have, that I've made to you. So we know that God, for, God, for Jacob, grace was normal in his life. God was with him at all times, always, and in all ways. The second thing that I want us to look at is that grace is God undergirding and overriding all a human efforts to have its own way. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is there are a million things that we can do that we think can get us what it is we want in the way that we want it. And God's plans are God's plans from beginning to end. Philippians 1 and 6 says that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. God's faithfulness is the thing that all of our efforts have to submit themselves to. So Jacob was the second son. He is born after Esau. So by rights, Esau is the one who should have all of the privileges of being the firstborn. He should have the birthright. He should have the blessing. But Jacob is the one that God says of him before he's even born, the younger will be served by the, by the elder, that the elder will serve the younger. And so no matter what happens in Jacob's life, those were God's plans. Those are plans that he speaks to Rebecca, his mother, when she says, what's going on in my womb? There's a warring going on in my womb. And God prophesies to her and he, and he says to her, your older son is going to serve your younger son. Your younger son is going to be the one through whom my promises, my promises move. So it doesn't matter that he's born first. It doesn't matter that he's actually his father Isaac's favorite. Esau is his father's favorite. It doesn't matter that he is the hunter, that he is the strong one, and that Jacob is the gentle one, and that Esau is, is the, the mannish one of the two. And it doesn't matter that he's older. What matters is God's plan. It also doesn't matter when Jacob leaves home that his uncle Laban cheats him out of a million things, cheats him out of his, first, out of his wife, he cheats him out of his property, he cheats him out of his labor, he cheats him out of a million things, and yet God continues to be with Jacob and continues to prosper him because God's grace is, is what God chooses it to be. And it doesn't matter Jacob's own, Jacob's own efforts. Now, the thing that we find out about Jacob is that he is a shady dude. He is shady and he's selfish and he is, he is constantly lying, he is dishonest, and he tricks his brother out of his birthright. Then he tricks his father into blessing him with the first son's blessing, and then he leaves, then he runs. He does his dirt and then he runs. Then he gets to Laban, and even though Laban is pretty dishonest and pretty shady with him, He's also cheating Laban, Laban, his uncle, out of a bunch of stuff as well. Jacob is not, he's not the, he's not, he's not the angel guy. He's not the guy who's, who's doing all things right at all times. As a matter of fact, he's doing pretty much most things wrong and he's doing them. He's being selfish and he's hurting other people in the process. And all the while he is, 
He's just getting away with it. It seems that he's getting away with it. But at the end of the day, what we're looking at are God's plans playing themselves out. It's not that God has forgotten or that God is ignoring who Jacob is. It is that God has some things that he wants to accomplish down the line. So the third thing that I want you to see, and, and this is where Jacob kind of, kind of meets his, his Waterloo, is that grace is sufficient, that God's grace is enough. It's all we need even when we have everything or we think we have everything, and especially when we have nothing. And so Jacob makes this habit of lying, manipulating situations to get what he wants. He is successful by worldly standards, and he is even bragging about it. He's even saying, you know, God is on my side. When Laban's sons tell him, you have become rich on my father's property, Jacob's response is, hey, God's on my side. God's, God's got me, right? And so he decides now it's time for him to go home. He's done with whatever he's done and he's gotten his, everything he wants to get out of his uncle's household. And so now he's ready to go home. So he's thinking to himself, how do I get myself home, get there and deal with the fact that my brother Esau wanted to kill me for what I took from him when I left. So he makes this he makes this decision that he's going to gift his way back into Esau's life. So he's on his way back home and he's, again, still the manipulator, still dishonest, still trying to have his own way in his own power. And he makes a decision to try and send Esau a bunch of gifts, animals, slaves, property, just whatever he can send him, just trying to get into his good graces. And it's at this point that God deals with him. Because as much as we'd like to think that our money or our charm or our position or our thinking or our talking can save us, at the end of the day, it is only God's grace that is sufficient for us. In fact, Paul talks about that. He talks about how God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ is pretty much all he needs. In Philippians 3, he talks about how if anybody had a reason to brag about who they were, it was Paul. He says, I am, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I am the guy. Concerning the law, I am a Pharisee. So in other words, what I say goes, what I do stands, I am that guy. He is the guy who says, let it be written, it's done. He leaves the room, he expects it to be done. He was that guy. And then he said, but you know what? I count all of that as garbage. I count it all as nothing in comparison to what I have in Jesus. And then in fact, he says, when he gets to verse nine, he says, I wanna be found in him, in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And this is what God is trying to get Jacob to understand that God's grace is sufficient, that God's grace is enough, that God made a promise to Jacob that he was going to bring him home. So now here's Jacob on his way home, thinking he's going to be the person who gets himself home. And so God has to meet him right before he gets there and he wrestles with him. And he wrestles with, with Jacob until Jacob understands, one, you can't beat God, and number two, not only can you not beat him, but he is the one who is going to do the things that need to be done 
for Jacob. So with God showing him this, God has, is working at maturing his faith. And when we think about what it means to truly trust in the grace of God, we say we trust God's grace. We say we trust him. We say we trust that he is a God who can do all things. He's all powerful. He's all present. He's, he's all knowing. And we say that we believe that. And yet we try in our own power to make things happen, or we try in our own power to be stuck in a place when we feel that God is telling us to move and to move forward. And so what God would have us do is to wrestle with him in those situations. He would have us to come to him to have that out. I was talking to somebody recently and they were talking about how they're just struggling with God sometimes. And, and they were asking me, is it a bad thing that sometimes I just don't believe God? And my response was, no, that's not a bad thing. The bad thing is when you don't take that up with God, is when you take that up within yourself or you take that up with other people or you just try to make some things happen. God is saying, no, I want you to wrestle with me. You will find out that I can win and that I will, I will, you know, I will take care of things and I'll do all things. But at the end of the day, our wrestling should be with God. And we become mature when we begin to wrestle with God and understand that he is not only sufficient, but that he is the one who does all things, that I am not enough, that my stuff is not enough, my talent is not enough. I can't think my way into or out of the things of the world, but that it is God who does those things for me and with me and through me. And so we get to a place where we're matured to the point that our faith transforms our choices instead of our choices shaping our faith. In the case of Jacob, his choices shaped his faith and he got to the place where he's just before he gets home and he realizes I am pretty much the only thing standing between me and Esau or so he thinks. And then he goes back to when he left home. He was so afraid of Esau, he ran away from home. He's still the same guy. He's still the same liar. He's still the same cheat. He's still the same selfish guy. He's still the same shady character. And if this is what he's going back home with, he is surely going to die because his brother wants to kill him. And so he's afraid and that is when God can deal with him because he understands that he's come to the end of himself and God says, I got this. And then Jacob can actually go home and he finds that things are not exactly as he had feared they would be, that God has changed Esau's heart, that God has moved him to the place where he can now come back home where he couldn't have come back home before but it was all God's grace in action in a time when Jacob had no idea about it. In Jacob's story, we actually see Jesus, Jesus who is God's firstborn, who unlike Esau did not despise his birthright, but he literally lived into it. And I think it's interesting that when we see Jesus in the wilderness, we actually see him faced with the same kinds of choices that Jacob had, only he has a very different response. When you look at the enemy saying to Jesus, hey, turn that stone into bread because I know you're hungry. You know, it's like, yeah, just look out for number one. Take care of yourself. Don't worry about anything else. I'm the one who, I'm, I'm just telling you what you need to do. Take care of yourself. Do the things that you need to do just for you. And Jesus could have done that, but he said, no, man doesn't live by bread alone, 
He lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The second temptation, jump off that mountain. You know God has got you. God is, he is not gonna let you dash your foot against a stone. He'll catch you. He'll send his angels to catch you and lift you up. And so go ahead, just jump, prove that God is with you. And then you, you, you kind of hear these echoes of Jacob saying to, to Laban's sons, hey, God is with me. But I think it's interesting that Jesus's response to him is kind of akin to, yeah, God is with me, but I'm with him too. And I think that that's where we mess up sometimes. We sometimes know that God is with us and we decide we're going to take advantage of that and move forward in this kind of arrogant place because we know God is with us, but God would like for us to mature to the place where we can say, you know what, I'm with him too. It's kind of like walking around with those t-shirts that say, I'm with stupid. I think sometimes God is like walking around with that t-shirt, but he's nice enough not to say I'm with stupid, but we need to actually say, and I'm with him too. And then the third temptation, go ahead, take the kingdom for yourself. I wanna give you this kingdom. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. The kingdom is Jesus's already. And so Satan is actually telling him, I'm gonna give you something that you already have. Now here you also have Jacob who is trying to get home, trying to get to a place God already promised him he'd be at in Genesis 28. He already told him, I'm going to bring you back here. So now Jacob is trying to get back there to the place God already promised him he'd be under his own power. And so Jesus, we see his story in the story of Jacob only. We see the story of one who is the firstborn who understood the value of that and what that meant. And now he sits as the firstborn among many at the right hand of the father. In Jacob's story, we also see our own story. Israel is God's firstborn. And like Esau, they rejected their birthright and forfeited their blessing when they rejected the Messiah, Jesus. So the younger or the lesser Gentiles were then able to receive the blessing. Now, if you look at Romans 9, chapters 9 through chapters 11, Paul explains all of that in great detail. Do yourself a favor this week. Just kind of read those passages and then really understand that it is God's grace. It is by his grace that we are saved, that we're allowed to be in the kingdom, that we are allowed to be God's sons and daughters. It is only by his grace, not because of anything we did, not, Paul says, not by works, but by him who calls us. And he says, if you are Christ's, you are Abraham's seed. And so we have this privilege to be able to have this as a part of our lives, not because of anything we did, but because God decided that we would be the branches that were grafted into the branch of Israel. And where Jacob was arrogant about his favor that he received from God, Paul cautions us in Romans not to be so. In fact, he says in Romans 11, 18 through 20, he says, do not consider yourself superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root, meaning the house of Israel, but the root supports you. You will then say branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in, granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. In the coming weeks, I am hoping that we will tremble. 
I'm hoping that we see the grace of God in our lives. I'm hoping that we understand and we allow the Holy Spirit to find us in the stories of Jacob and Esau, of Laban and Rebecca and Isaac, Rachel, Leah, even in Jesus and in Paul. I'm hoping that we will see through these next few weeks that grace is amazing, but it is also normal and it is with us always. That grace undergirds and overrides every one of our human efforts. That grace is all we need, even when we think we have everything we need and especially when we have nothing. That Jesus understood what it meant to live by the grace of God and that he himself is the fullness of God's grace toward us. I wanna end with Paul's beautiful doxology, which he just kind of breaks into at the end of Romans 11, because I really do think that over the next few weeks, I want us to understand that in these words, there is all that needs to be said and that there is nothing more that needs to be said. He says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God and what God, that God should ever repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.